Our scripture passage today comes from the book of Philippians, chapter 3, beginning in verse 12. Hear God's holy and authoritative word. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you, and now tell, now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, Stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. The grass withers and the flower fades. Man, you may be seated. As we come to God's word, uh, we need his help, so let's pray together. Father, we thank you for these words recorded to us, written down by your appointed apostles, inspired by your Holy Spirit given for our instruction and correction and comfort. Lord, give us your spirit today that we might hear what your word speaks to us, that we might be changed in our hearts and minds, that we might see Christ and come to know and love him more. Please do this work in our midst. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, in 1954, there was... Something happening that had never happened, at least as far as we know, in the history of humanity, and that was the race for somebody to break a four-minute mile. I don't know how fast I could run a mile if I tried today, but it would surely be longer than four minutes. A man who was from Britain, his name was Roger Bannister, on May 6th, was able to meet that task. He ran his first ever recorded sub-four-minute mile, Three minutes, 59.4 seconds. It was certainly one of the unexpected, very difficult things for somebody to be able to do, to be able to break through those last few seconds. And as he was training to do this thing, there was another man named John Landy, who was from Australia. And he often spoke of the desire to break that four-minute barrier. But even just two seconds seemed like an insurmountable wall to him. Well, in May, as Roger Bannister broke that record, it wasn't but just a month and a half later, on June 21st, that John Landy also broke the four-minute record. In fact, he beat Roger Bannister's time. Three minutes, 57 seconds, 57.9 seconds. Now, to the delight of many people at the time, these two men were slated to race each other later that year. 
It was called the Miracle Mile, the race of the century. August 7th, 1954, the British Empire and the Commonwealth Games in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. The two men who had just broken this unthinkable feat were going to now race one another. And of course, there were other men in the race that nobody cared about because it was all about Landy and Bannister. Who was truly the better runner? Who was truly faster? Now, Landy had the fastest time on record, but Bannister was the first one to break it. And so as they came to this race, of course, they were hopeful that they would be deemed the one who was indeed the greatest man, the fastest man ever. And as Bannister prepared himself, he thought that he would take the third lap as a little bit of a slower pace so that in the fourth lap around the track, he would be, over, be able to overtake Landy. To his surprise, though, in the third lap, Landy began to gain way more of a lead than Bannister was comfortable with, even to the point of almost a half a lap ahead of him. And so Bannister began to run as fast as he can, and he began to catch up to Landy. And here they are in the final stretch of the race. Landy is ahead, and Bannister is gaining on him. And in this moment that is crystallized throughout all of the newspapers, all of the broadcasts, Landy just a few strides away from the end of the race, unsure how far back Bannister is from him, turns to look to his left. And as he does, Bannister passes him on the right. That one moment of loss of concentration, one moment to try to look back to see how far ahead he was, to try to gauge how well he was doing, rather than focusing on his goal, was his undoing. There are statues of this scene, unfortunately for Landy, of him looking to the left as Bannister passes him and wins the race. This imagery of running the race, of enduring to the end, of staying focused on the course, is one that we see several times throughout Scripture, and Paul brings to bear here in our passage from Philippians. We look even back to the writer of Hebrews chapter 12. He says, Therefore, we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Let us lay aside all the distractions, all the things that might cause us to look back over our shoulder and instead fix our eyes on Jesus. The Apostle Paul, who wrote this letter, also wrote to the church in Corinth and said, Do you not know that in a race all runners run, but only one receives the prize? Only Bannister is the fastest man. So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and I keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. And Paul picks up that language here in our passage. He presses on towards the goal. He casts aside, forgetting what was behind presses forward, that he might obtain it. 
as we look at our passage today, we are reminded so often this imagery that we are all bombarded, that we are all surrounded, that so often we are prone to be distracted, to look in other directions, to be pulled this way or that. We have distractions in our lives, other things vying for our attention. We have doubts. We have good things in our lives that we have made into ultimate things, which we spoke about last week. We have insecurity, a need to be reassured that we're doing good enough. As we saw, as Paul rebuked the false teachers earlier here in chapter 3, they have people around us telling us we need to do certain things brings guilt to us. And of course, those men also found confidence in their own efforts, like we do, that leads us to self-righteousness. So many things draw away our attention from the prize. And Paul is reminding the church, he is reminding us of the great prize that lies ahead of us, that we should throw off what is holding us back, to not look back over our shoulder, but instead to stay the course. And really, as we look at this passage, we have two examples here of what I would like to call true godliness and false godliness. And as we look at this contrast between true godliness that Paul is going to uh, show us in his own life versus the false godliness of those who are trying to lead the church astray, we see that they are different in four ways. And these are kind of our four points we'll go through together. They are different in their aim, in their attitude, in their actions, and in their anchor. Their aim, their attitudes, their actions, and their anchor. Now before we start in verse 12 here, I want us to go forward to verse 18, which is this description of false godliness. As we look at this passage, we see Paul describing what these false teachers are all about. Earlier, Paul talked about these Judaizers that were in the church. Uh, He called them dogs. They were those who told them to mutilate their flesh that they might have right standing before God. And here, Paul picks up the same theme as he talks about those who are false, who have this wrong idea of what godliness is. They have the wrong aim, the wrong attitude, the wrong actions, and the wrong anchor. First, their aim. What are we told in verse 18? Where are they headed? What is the goal that lies ahead for them? Well, we're told two things. They're focused on earthly things. They're focused on fleshly realities. They're focused on importance at the moment as they look for external confirmation that they are doing the right things. But ultimately, their aim is that they're headed towards destruction. It's very strong words. The judgment. They're not headed towards the prize of salvation. They're not headed towards the resurrection. As we look at our passage today, right? Paul is continuing a thought from earlier in chapter uh, chapter 3, right there at verse 10 and 11, that Paul might attain to the resurrection of the dead. These false teachers, this false godliness is not leading towards new life. It's not leading towards resurrection. It's not leading towards our inheritance in Christ. It is headed towards destruction, and it finds its home in earthly things. That's the aim of false godliness. They may not be aware that that is their aim, but that is ultimately where they are headed. 
Second is the attitude of false godliness. The attitude, we're told, is that they even glory in their shame. They brag about the things they do, the things that are shameful. Even if we think back to the Judaizer of the earlier part of this chapter, they glory in these external realities, their, their own participation in the law. They are not humble, but prideful. Boasting in themselves. This is the attitude of false godliness. Third action. What is the action of false godliness? They worship and serve their appetites and their passions. Their God is their belly. What do they do? They do whatever they want to do. They do whatever causes them to feel comfortable. They are God. They are to be served. They are to be worshipped. Their actions are rooted on their self. And really this is the answer to our last A, anchor. Their anchor is their own righteousness. We go back to verse 9 from last week. Paul was talking about not having a righteousness of his own, but having the righteousness that comes by faith. False godliness has self-righteousness, self-worship, focused on yourself, glorying in your accomplishments. So we don't get a lot of content here, just this one Verse, two verses here. And so we want to spend most of our time talking about true godliness. But as we think about this false godliness of the aim, the attitude, the action, and the anchor, it's the same old story. This isn't just these people in Philippi. You can even go back to the first sin, the first false godliness that we are introduced to in Scripture, Genesis chapter 3. What is the aim in the fall? The temptation is that we can be like God. Oh, I can be God? That seems like an intriguing endeavor. What's the attitude? I saw the fruit and it was desirable. Seemed good to me. Something I would want. The action. Deceived. Take. Eat. Sin. Give to the other person. Worship and serve their appetites, their bellies. Ultimately, the anchor is their selves. Having been put in the perfect garden, it's not good enough. They couldn't be anchored in God's presence. Instead, they sought their own glory. So it's nothing new that's happening in Philippi. It's nothing that has stopped since. This is all something we are all prone to do. But Paul is calling the church here to true godliness and its aim, its attitude, its actions, and its anchor. So first, its aim. Look at verse 12 with me. Paul is continuing to talk about obtaining this. Obtaining. Obtaining what? The resurrection. That he might gain Christ and participate in his resurrection. This is referring back to verses 8 through 11. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, having a righteousness that is not my own that comes through the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, 
the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings and become like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. This is what Paul is striving towards, that he might be found in Christ, that he might participate not only in this earthly ministry, but that even in his suffering and in his death, as he's writing from prison, potentially facing death, he's doing so as an act towards this aim, that he would be found in Christ and participate in the glory of the resurrection. He goes on to say that he is not perfect, right? He doesn't claim to be perfect, but his aim is that he will be, that Christ will make him perfect. This is his hope. Verse 13, he hopes for what lies ahead. He knows that better things are to come, that all of the sufferings in his moment of weakness, his moment in prison, all of the different persecutions he's experienced as an apostle are nothing compared to the glories that lie ahead of him. Verse 14, he strives ahead towards the goal. Verse 14, for the prize, the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul knows his aim. He is focused in. He has his eyes fixed on Jesus. He sees all of his circumstances in light of his goal. Nothing will distract him from obtaining this glorious gift. And then we look at Paul's attitude. That's his aim. Let's look at his attitude. We can go all the way back to verse 3, which is outside of our passage for today. He says, "For For we, not those who actually are telling you you need to be circumcised, but we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and the glory in Christ Jesus. They glory in their shame. Paul glories in Christ. His attitude is bringing Christ glory. Verse 12, he's not yet arrived to that. He's humble. He realizes he's still a work in progress, even though he is this mighty apostle. We talked about the progress of Paul as he described himself throughout his letters. He's the least of the apostles. He's the least of the saints. In fact, he's the chief of sinners. He has continued to become more humble. He knows he is not fully arrived. He has not yet made it, verse 13. But he forgets everything that lies behind him. He just made a list earlier on of all of the things he could boast in. He's the Hebrew of Hebrews, son of Benjamin, Pharisee, leaves it all behind, counts it as nothing, forgetting any accomplishments that he may have had. Verse 15, we begin to see Paul talk about those who are mature. He's seeking maturity. And we see even how he views his enemies in verse 18. What does he say about the false teachers? I'm telling you about them with tears. He's not just chastising these people over here. Look how terrible they are. He is weeping that they aren't participating that they are doing such wicked things, that they aren't seeing this glorious truth, that they aren't glorying in Christ and instead are lost and headed towards destruction, and it causes him to weep. And in our final verse, chapter 4, verse 1, 
He is full of love for these people. He is longing for them. He calls him his joy and his crown, his beloved. Paul's attitude is one that is fully shaped by his union with Christ, his aim to gain Christ. He doesn't claim to be perfect. Those false teachers who claimed false godliness claim to have arrived. You want to arrive too? Just do these things and you can be in. Paul says, I've not arrived, but I know where I'm headed. And it is Christ who will bring me there. It is Christ I will glory in. And I'll forget everything else so I can make it. Then we see Paul's actions. Verse 12, he presses on. He endures. He has perseverance. Verse 12 again, he wants to make it his own. It's not borrowed from somebody else. He wants to experience it personally. He wants it to be the trophy on his shelf. He wants his name written in the books. It's intentional. It's personal. He, verse 13, is straining forward. You can just get this imagery of resistance, thinking about trying to beat that clock to four minutes, straining ahead. Verse 14, pressing on once again. And he calls the church in verse 15 to think rightly, to hold true to what we have obtained. It's not that we don't have anything. It's not that we haven't arrived at some level. And we ought to hold true, stand firm. In fact, Paul's actions are so bold, he even calls the church to imitate him. To look at his example and to follow others who are helpful examples as well. Oftentimes we hear that often more is caught than is taught in our homes, in our relationships, and that's certainly true. Paul can teach them all sorts of glorious truths, but he also tells them to watch, to imitate, to catch what he has, to follow him where he's going, to not focus on the other things, but to lay those aside as they strive together. And lastly, in our verse, to stand firm. Now, all of this sounds great. All of this may sound condemning to us because we are aimless. We are distracted. We may don't have very good attitudes. We may be very passive instead of taking action. But the central point of Paul's letter here in this passage is reminding the church of their anchor. Remember back in Philippians chapter 2, Paul is talking about how they ought to do these works, and he says, You ought to do them, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Have this aim, do have this attitude, do these actions, not merely in your own strength, because it is God who is at work, both to will, to give us the motivation to do it, but also the energy, the ability. His Spirit gives us the power, as we see in the book of Acts. 
And so when we look at these things, when we think about the imagery of racing, we often come back to ourselves for our motivation, for our strength. And that is a great error. That is in the category of the false godliness. That's focused on ourselves, on the earthly things, on our own glory. But Paul calls us to something else. Look at what he says even at the beginning in verse 12. Not that I have already obtained it, obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. He presses on. He's, he's actively engaged. He's intentional in his energy. Why? Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. How can he even have any hope of gaining these things? How can he possibly experience the resurrection from the dead? How can he possibly stand firm? How can he have any confidence? How can he continue to stay focused? It's because of this truth. Christ has made him his own. Verse 14 He's going to the call of God in Christ Jesus. God is at work. Verse 15, if any of us think otherwise, God will reveal it to us. Paul is rooted in God's revelation of himself to his people. Oftentimes when we look at a passage of scripture, we see a lot of what we call imperatives, commands, things to do. You have to be really careful as you look at those passages to also find what we call indicatives, true statements about you that give you the ability to do the commands. And that's what we're going through now. Paul can have confidence that he can obtain this. Why? Because Christ has made him his own. God has placed a call. God has revealed himself. Verse 20 We are citizens of heaven, not citizens of earth. We are waiting for our Savior to come. And what's he going to do when he comes in verse 21? He's going to bring about all of the things Paul is striving towards. Paul is just trying to persevere for another day, trying to keep his eyes fixed, trying to encourage the church to follow behind him as they wait for the glorious day when Christ will be the transforming power of our lowly, dead, sinful bodies to be made like his glorious body. This is the anchor. This is how Paul is able to run the race, how he's able to have the aim and the attitude and the actions. As we think about this picture of striving towards true godliness, of course, brings many questions for us about our aim and our attitude and our actions and our anchor. As we think about where we're headed, where we're trying to go, as we think about discipling our children or growing godliness ourselves, is our aim to be like God? Or is our aim to be with him? This is what Paul is aiming towards. Not like Adam and Eve wanting to be like God in the garden, but being with him, participating in Christ's resurrection, obtaining all of the good blessings he has provided for us in Christ. 
we want to just be like God, we'll do things that make us look like that. Things that pat ourselves on the back, make us feel important. Serve our needs rather than God's. When we think about our attitudes, are we riddled with guilt that we aren't doing the things other people tell us we should be doing? Are we filled with pride because of the great things we have done? Or are we able, like Paul, to forget all of those things as being worthless rubbish? We can be weighed down in a sense of shame. We can be weighed down with our pride, but they're both the same problem. They're both focused on us. And when we think about our actions, are we even trying? (laughs) Are we intentional? Are we just passively participating? Are we striving ahead? Have we caught the zeal Paul has? Do we see how glorious Christ is that we want nothing more than to be there with him? At the cost of everything else, are we focused? Most of us will find ourselves to be wanting. And that's our condition. We live in this already not yet that Paul is describing here at the beginning of his passage. Hey, I know I'm not perfect. I've not obtained it. I'm not claiming to have obtained it. You have not obtained it. I have not obtained it. Nobody in this life has obtained it. And that is our hope, that Christ will obtain it for us and do this work in us. That is the anchor that will guide us towards this goal. As Paul begins this little section here, our anchor is that we must rest in God's work. We must look at this passage and see Paul is striving to obtain this, to make it his own, because Christ has made him his own. And we must realize that is true for us as well. How can we do these things? We must realize what God has done. He has made us his own. You can't run towards the goal if you've never seen it. You can't have the right attitude if God hasn't brought it to will in your heart. You don't know the actions to take. If he isn't guiding you, Paul is calling the saints, he is calling me and you to stand firm, to strive with him, to look to examples of those who have true godliness, who lead us not to ourselves, not to our own comforts, but to the glory of Christ and to the hope of the resurrection. May God do that work in our hearts, that we might run the race, that we might see the goal, that we, like Paul, long for the day of the resurrection and are not content for our own boasting. When we look at our lives and we think of all the things we've done, whether we've failed or whether we've been successful, and those things aren't what determine our standing before God, but what determines our standing is that Jesus Christ has made us his own. Let us run in that confidence, knowing that he will transform us, that he is at work, that he will sustain us, and let us not turn our eyes to anything else. He is our true anchor. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Christ, our steady anchor, who works in us to will and to do your good pleasure. Father, keep our eyes from distraction, Lord. 
Help us to see the glory of Christ that we might be fixated, determined, motivated, that we might run to be with him. Lord, we need your spirit to do this work in our hearts. We need to be reminded that you have made us your own. Help us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.